The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Just let that sink in for just a moment. You are a child of God. You are chosen. You are not forsaken. You are who God says you are because you are in Christ. And he is for you and he is not against you because you are in Christ. You are safe in Christ. Uh, just let that sink in and let's, let's just respond in prayer joyfully. God, we give you thanks for the truth of what we just sang. That in all circumstances and in all things, we can know that you are with us. We can know that we don't have to, we don't have to weep, we don't have to fear. And we know that there is a time, there is a place, a place that is coming that we will see with our own eyes in the presence of Jesus Christ where there will be no more tears and there will be no more fear and there will be no more pain. And I thank you, Lord, that we have that to look forward to because it is finished. We praise you. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you have a seat? We're going to hear the scripture being read this morning uh, by Rennie and Shirley Gagnon, and then uh, that's on video, and then we're going to watch another video, and that's from the uh, North American Baptist Conference. It's the church conference that we are a part of, so we'll watch those now. We're Rennie and Shirley Gagnon. Today we're going to read from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into a meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, have not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you to court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble names to him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My name is Wayne Stapleton. Um, I think sometimes we think we need new muscles and we need new skills in order to uh, engage with people of a different culture or a different race who are in the body of Christ. And the truth is, we don't need new skills. We just need to do the Bible that's already there. We're told in Romans 12 uh, how to treat other people in the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, in the ESV, the heading is marks of a true Christian. You know, it's associate with people of low estate. Do not be haughty. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Um, we're told in Philippians 2 to consider others better than ourselves, to do nothing out of selfishness. Uh, so we have the tools in the text. The problem is, is that we need to be courageous enough to apply them in context that we're not comfortable with. But I suspect that when we do that, we will not only find that we will grow in our understanding and application of the word, but we become more like Jesus and we actually topple idols that we probably never knew we had. And the fascinating thing is, is that if we just learned that we're missionaries wherever we are, instead of being missionaries over salt water, we would grow in this area. Nobody ever questions a missionary who's gonna to go to a foreign country and who's gonna learn the language and learn the customs. But for some reason, when the people, when we don't have to cross salt water to get to them, we have a tendency to expect them to be just like us. What we need to recognize the fact is that we need to use missionary skills with everyone that we interact with on a regular basis. But the other piece of it too is that we've been given the heart of Jesus Christ and the Father through the Gospel of John when Jesus prays, may they be one as we are one. May Christ's church be one as Jesus is with the Father. Um, we get to see his heart and his desire. And I think that we struggle with that and we have difficulty with that because we believe that that oneness has to cover everything, a kind of a unanimity, a uniformity. But I don't believe that the uniformity necessarily is, is what he's after, he's after unity. There can be differences. And yet at the same time, we are or organized around and we find our identity in who Jesus Christ is. The church can be expected to have oneness in the context of diversity and difference. One of the challenges might be though, is that we have to struggle through it. And we have to struggle through what the kinds of differences we have as people, the kinds of differences we have as cultures, the kind of differences that there might be socioeconomically, even politically in certain cases. But at the same time, what struggle is as glorious as working for the very thing we know that Jesus Christ has prayed for us to have. And to abandon it in some ways seems to leave work undone that we're responsible for on earth, which is showing the immense power of the gospel, not only to save people, but to unite people. Amen. That was a video from Wayne Stapleton, uh, uh, employee and member of the North American Baptist Conference, of which our church is a, a member of that same denomination. And uh, I thought it was a fitting introduction to our message this morning. As you heard uh, Rennie and Shirley read, it's all about the sin of partiality, of showing favoritism. And I loved the way that uh, Wayne Stapleton said it. He, he said that uh, we just need to do the Bible that's already there. The tools are in the text. We just need to do it. I love it because um, it reminds me of Mark Twain's words. Mark Twain said that he was quoted to have said that it's not the parts in the Bible that he doesn't understand that bother him. It's the parts in the Bible that he does understand that, that bother him. And I think we can all relate to that. And so this morning as we get into the scripture, um, we're going to open up the Word of God to James chapter 2, and I'm going to ask the Lord to just bless this time together in the Word. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of opening the Bible and of speaking of this age text, this ageless text uh, that James wrote to the scattered church 
in Judea and Samaria 2,000 years ago. And now, today, it's so relevant for us. And we ask you, Lord God, to help us to uh, peel back the curtain of uh, ignorance in our own lives, the lack of self-awareness that we might have. And enable us, Lord, to see as a church, as well as as individuals, what are the things that you want to put your finger on through this text. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, I quoted from Charles Colson, and I shared with you how there came to be a point in time when he thanked God for having spent years in prison because of the Watergate scandal. And uh, one of the inspiring parts of his life was reading the book that was by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago, when he said in his book, Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. And it is that last line that, that Colson picks up on, the maturity of the human soul. And he responds by saying this sentence. He says that the maturing of the human soul is manifested when other people become more important than you. Now I want to stop there just for a moment and think about that. The maturing of the human soul, the maturity of your faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge you've got, the maturity of the human soul is demonstrated in how you treat other people. Are they more important than you? Husbands, wives, when you come to the end of your day and you put your head on your pillow, can you reflect on the day and say your prayer back up to God and say, God, I, I did my best to treat my wife, my husband, my children, my neighbor, my co-worker as someone who is better than me, more important than me. I've taken their agenda. Is that the way you have lived your life? And so Colson picks up on that theme, and he says that this is the maturity that we're looking for. This is really why James is writing his letter. Because anyone can say that they have a mature faith, but how is it evidenced? How is it evidenced in the way we live our lives, in the way we treat people? Last week, we talked about being doers of the word. Today, our key word really is the word love because Jesus points to verse 8 in this text as, I think, the centerpiece. James is saying, this is the royal law. Treat others the way you, need to be, you want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't show partiality. That's the context of quoting the royal law of love. Because obviously, there was Christians in the time of James that he's writing to, and they were showing partiality. They were favoring others over others' people. And the big idea of the text this morning that I want to share with you in the time I have, it's, it's printed in your sermon notes uh, insert. The big idea is that showing partiality is absolutely inconsistent with our faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you four ways that James unpacks that. He says that it's inconsistent because it reveals that that showing partiality is based on superficial, man-made distinctions. It's because it's rooted in worldly values, showing dis dis 
distinctions among people. Uh, favoritism is also contrary to the law of love. And finally, it's judgmental rather than merciful. These four points are in your sermon notes insert in your bulletin. They're also online. I want to talk about those four things, but to begin with, I want to just talk about the word favoritism in the, in the Greek text. In the ESV, it says partiality. In the NIV, it's favoritism. It's used a couple times in this verse, verse 1, verse 9. The Greek word has to do, literally, with judging by the face, okay? It literally has to mean that you walk up to someone's face and you judge them by their face. It's taking appearances, it's judging by what externals are showing you. It's looking at someone or something and judging only by what you see. Instead of judging by what you are told is inherently and intrinsically in every human being. Okay, You are judging by appearances, not by intrinsic value. That's what this word has to do with. I'm certain that all of you, if you were to think back in your memory about your experiences in life, you have been on the wrong side of a discriminating judgment. You have been shown partiality. You have been discriminated against somehow and just been not part of the in crowd, not part of the group that is being included. And you know how you felt when you, you felt that way. I remember just discussing this with Pat, and, and uh, we thought about Bolivia. How many times in Bolivia, which is a, a more male-dominated culture perhaps, and uh, Pat and I would work together on a program for the seminary in, in Bolivia, and, and I would get the thanks and get the credit, and yet Pat might have done most of the work. And so she felt discriminated. That was showing partiality to me as the male in the relationship. There's these kinds of things that happen all kinds of times. And so James is saying that, that this is wrong. Now, to understand why he's saying it's wrong, I want to back up. And I want to go through a little bit of a worldview study, just quickly with me, if you'll bear with me. I believe that Christian worldview is based on four big ideas. You could call them the four pillars. C.S. Lewis talks about some of these things. They are the questions that are answered in the Christian worldview very specifically are where did we come from? Why is there a mess in this world? Is there a way out of the mess? And what is my purpose in life? So just think about those four for a moment. Why, uh, where did I, we come from? If we were to go back exactly one year, we were in the book of Genesis talking about where we came from. And the Bible teaches us that all humans are created in the image and likeness of God. And that because of that very thing, they are endowed with inherent value, dignity, and worth. That is where we came from. And that is why everyone is to be treated with respect and equally. In fact, all humans are meant to be treated this way. And in fact, even non-Christian people, unbelievers, and even atheists acknowledge this idea that it is from religion like Christianity that comes this important distinctive of human integrity. Tom Holland, in his book called Dominion, writes that the Western world's idea of individual freedom and dignity of the human person is the product of Christianity, he says. John Gray, he's an atheist, 
He writes that modern politics, with its idea of human rights, is a chapter in the history of religion, especially Christianity. The atheist philosopher Luke Ferry, in a book called A Brief History of Thought, teaches that it is the idea of the image of God that the West owes its entire democratic inheritance. And then Friedrich Nietzsche, who is the guy that said God was dead, himself acknowledged that the universal human rights, which he saw as weakness, he admitted, comes from the Christian worldview. So this, this is the foundation. This is one of the pillars. Another question, why is there a mess in the world? Again, go back a year. We studied the book of Genesis. We came to chapter 3. We saw why there's a mess in the world. Because our forefathers, instead of acknowledging and trusting God as their creator that had their best interests in mind, chose to follow their own desires, pick from the forbidden fruit, become aware of both good and evil, and therefore, listening to the devil, the serpent, uh, came to realize themselves that there is an evil side that they were part of. And this break in their relationship with God, trusting him as father, broke also the horizontal relationships on earth. It broke their relationship with creation, and it broke their relationship with each other. So we have a mess in the world, according to the Bible, because we have disobeyed God. Why is there a mess in the world? Well, you and I are the reason there's a mess in the world. And so it is both a nature problem and a nurture problem. That's why there's a, a mess in the world. Thirdly, is there a way out of the mess? If we got ourselves into this mess, then naturally we must be able to get ourselves out of this mess. But the Christian worldview says no. You will not get yourself out of this mess. The answer that we find in the Bible is we cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot change and transform ourselves. We cannot redeem society. We cannot redeem our own souls. We don't even live up to our own standard. We don't have the will or the ability to. So we need a redeemer. That's the solution. We need God to bring recreation. We studied in Genesis that God worked through a man named Abraham to bring forth the deliverer. And we saw through the seed of Abraham that Jesus Christ was born, the one who was God and man. And through Jesus Christ who went to the cross, he died on that cross for sinners. He went to the grave. He rose from the grave and he was ascended into heaven. He is right now, as I speak here, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for his people on earth, drawing people to himself. He is the Redeemer. He is the reason that we can know there is a way out of the mess that is in the world. And then finally, once redeemed, what is my purpose in life? The Christian worldview answers that very directly. Your purpose in life, Christian, redeemed one, is to join God in redeeming this world. Your purpose in life is to align with the purposes of God. Your purpose in life is to live out the very things that God has on his heart, to bring healing to the lost, to bring reconciliation where it's needed, to bring peace and harmony where there's strife. 
Now, if you back up and think about all four of these things that I've shared, these questions, and turn them into statements, we have four pillars of the Christian worldview. The worldview that we believe as Christians is founded upon on the Bible and on what Jesus taught is that, number one, we were created in the image of God. We have immense value, every human does, because of that. Secondly, we have fallen by our own free will into sin. We are the reason for the mess in the world. Thirdly, we are redeemed only by the merciful intervention of God to send his son to redeem people for his own possession. And finally, our purpose in this world is a commissioning from God to fulfill his purposes, aligning with him and pointing people to the Savior, Jesus. Now, why do I share all that? I share all that because... I share all that because James believed those four pillars. James had the Christian worldview. And so when James puts pen to paper and we get to chapter 2 and he's talking about not showing partiality, the reason that he writes with such conviction and he commands us in the first verse, don't show partiality is because he has these four pillars in his Christian worldview. And so he says it's inconsistent. It's inconceivable that a Christian could treat one of God's creatures in a way that denigrates something that God, someone that God has made in his image. Died to redeem. It's incompatible with your faith. How could you do that? He's saying. And so it's contrary to everything that he stands for. Let me read to you a quote that is going to rock your world, I think. And the first sentence is this. Ideally, the church is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. Now just stop there for a moment. I don't know. I, I hope that gets your attention. I really do. To me, when I first read this is a Donald Carson quote, I had to stop and think about it. The church, ideally, is not made up of your natural friends. It is made up of your natural enemies. He goes on to say, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake hogwashed all the other factors that might unite us. If the growth, if the unity, if the success of White Ridge Baptist Church is on the, based on the fact that somehow we are all uh, more alike, then we are missing the point of the gospel, folks. We are missing the point Jesus Christ came and he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Why? So he could create one new people. Have you read the last book of the Bible lately? I read the last chapter. 
And the last chapter of the book, not of Revelation, but of the whole Christian history, is that we see around the throne of God, guess who we see? We see people from every family, nation, tribe, and tongue, and every variety of human beings that have ever existed and be created by God. They're all there worshiping Jesus. You better learn to get along on this earth because you're going to be with everyone in heaven. Do you see how inconsistent it is to make human barriers? I remember back in Bible school days studying in what was fairly current at the time coming out of Fuller Theological Seminary in California, a couple of guys by the name of Donald McGavern and Peter Wagner. And they were studying church growth principles. Donald McGavern had grown up in India. And uh, they came upon this thing they called the homo homogeneous unit principle. And they, and they realized that the Apostle Paul was ministering the gospel in the book of Acts in, in, in this way. He's looking at people groups. He, he becomes all things to all people that all might be saved. I get it. Some people, however, have taken this idea of homogeneous units, people that are all alike, like attracts like, and they have pushed that to the nth degree, and they have denied the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, James is as passionate as I am, if not more so, that we build our worldview, our, our beliefs and our practices on our Christian worldview. Why is showing favoritism inconsistent with our worldview? First of all, it's inconsistent because it's based on superficial <laughs> distinctions. Verse 2 <clears throat> of James 2 uh, James goes into a story. He gives an example. He says, imagine that you're in your assembly like we are this morning and a rich man comes in. The literal, literal Greek word that is used for the rich man is gold-fingered. <laughs> Just imagine that a guy comes in with lots of bling. Gold-fingered. And you say to him, oh, come on, he sit here. And then another man comes in and he's poor, dressed in shabby clothes, and you say, hey, stand out there in the foyer, or, or come sit at my feet. James says in verse 4, have you, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Man-made, human, superficial, artificial distinctions. There's all kinds of them, aren't there? human distinctions, person's income, lifestyle, where they live, what car they drive, their clothing, all kinds. Money was a division in the day of James as it was and is today. Source of division in the early church. And so David Bosch, a, a missiologist, writes this. David Bosch says that the wealth increased among the early Christians, and as it increased, they began to interpret the Bible differently. They began to look at every poverty passage and interpret it metaphorically. Now, we know that when Jesus comes to speaking about the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, we know he's speaking about the poor in spirit. <clears throat> but they begin to take things like this passage, James chapter 2, and say, yeah, well, that's, that's talking about poor in spirit. No. James is talking about materially poor, showing, part, showing a particular favoritism to those that have money and not to those that do not. And so... <clears throat> James is addressing this. 
We could make a list of examples that are based on judging by the face. We could make a list of examples where we, we separate out and make external judgments on appearances or we have attitudes in our hearts. And so we make distinctions that go skin deep. And if we do so, James is saying, you're immature in your faith because it has nothing to do with the way I see people. You know, we can't, obviously our minds go to the racial, ethnic distinctions that mark our times. It's incredible to think about the fact that our genetic makeup, our literal human body composition, our genetic makeup, you take a person from anywhere on the planet and you will find that the genetic makeup of every person that's ever been created, ever lived, is 99.9 something 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 percent exactly the same. Think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. Whether you take someone who is two people that look absolutely different on the externals, and you, you put them into this micro uh, scope and you figure out their biology and their makeup and their genetic differences are minuscule. We are all more alike than we are different. I commend to you the work of the North American Baptist Conference. This is a comment that they make, or the, sorry, that they don't make, but it's a definition of a term that they have adopted racial righteousness and uh, I just found this definition racial righteousness is a state where the righteousness of the kingdom of God is practiced and reverses the standards of the regular social order goes on and in their webpage I'd commend it to you they say this the mission of Christ is about bringing his gospel to an actual world in which oppressive structures and divisive force have damaged the dignity of human beings. Followers of Jesus are formed into the image of Christ through humility, self-sacrifice, and loving service, opposing deeply ingrained views of superiority or inferiority to bring to bear the curse-breaking power of the gospel. I love that. The gospel just cuts across all the silos that we've made on the human community and the gospel just cuts through it all and says, guess what? Jesus Christ has come to love them all and you should love them all too. All of us are horrified. We were horrified this past week when we witnessed the final minutes of Joyce Eshaquan's life in Quebec in a hospital as health care workers degraded her told her she was stupid, told her that she wasn't worth living, she'd be better off dead. We're horrified. And I don't want to pick on health workers. The people such as police and health workers go into the front lines of ministry where you and I don't go, and you and I don't even want to go. I'm not, it's not about picking on these people. There's a lot of stress out there because of COVID-19 and all kinds of other factors. The point is, is that when we see it all lived out and, and spoken and live streamed to the world, we're horrified. And James says, well, what's in your heart? Where does it come from? What kind of partiality is, re is in the recesses of the closets of your heart, your mind? How does it come out? And so... 
I want to commend to you. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's educate ourselves. Let's, let's name it. Let's call it out if we see it in ourselves, in someone else. I would commend to you as well, uh, if you want a free subscription to Right Now Media, our church can give you that. Call the church office and we can give you that. There's all kinds of good resources can educate us on this theme. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ alone changes the conversation. The world is having a conversation, folks. And the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changes the conversation. So we need to be conversant if we're going to add grace to that conversation. The second reason is that it's inconsistent with our Christian worldview and our values is because it's rooted in worldly values. I, I want to go through quickly these next two points because I, I really feel some things at the end of this that I want to share. But there was, in 1979, a group of Catholic bishops that got together in Mexico. And they studied the Bible and they studied scriptures like James chapter 2. And when they were studying, they, they came out at the end of their conference together, they came out and they concluded that the Bible teaches that God has a preferential option for the poor. That's what they concluded. They, the language was preferential option for, for the poor. Kind of like, sounds like God has his favorites. Now, I'm not here to disprove or defend that statement. I'm not going to do that. But we do have to ask, what is James talking about in verse 5 when he says, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You have to wrestle what you, what you think that God is saying there. I like what um, one author states, Ronald Sider, says this. He says, let's agree on this, <laughs> that God is on the side of the oppressed, And those who claim to be the people of God must be on the same side as God. (laughs) I think we can all agree on that, can't we? God is on the side of the oppressed. Well, the centerpiece of this is that is contrary to the law of love. The centerpiece of this text is verse 8. James calls his readers to the royal law of love. Second most important commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what Jesus said from the law of Moses in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus said, in John, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. And so living outside of that love is inconsistent with the values, the Christian beliefs we have. And then finally, that... that, um, It's a denial of our faith to show partiality because it is judgment instead of merciful. And our faith is not a judgmental faith. Our faith is a merciful faith. If you know anything about Jesus, you know that. He calls it the law of liberty. How is it that this idea of mercy triumphing over judgment and the law of liberty, how does that fit together? Well, first of all, it's because it's the very character of God is to not be judgmental, but to be merciful. Did you know that? 
It says in the scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, The Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of the lords and the great God, mighty and awesome, and he shows no partiality and accepts no brides. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien because, because he gives them food and clothing. God shows no partiality. Doesn't judge by appearances. Shows mercy. For Samuel 16, Samuel's choosing a king. God says to him, don't consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9, God says to masters, you better be careful because both your master and their master is in heaven and he shows no partiality. Jesus says in John 7.24, do not judge by appearances. Peter realizes in Acts chapter 10, he says, truly understand that God shows no partiality but accepts from every nation anyone who comes to him. You see, this is the way of God. God is a God of mercy. The gospel is a gospel of mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you have a testimony this morning because of being a Christian, the testimony has to be a testimony about mercy. That God found you dead in your sins, on a worldly path, without hope, and God laid hold of you and rescued you. It's a testimony of mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, that's what Paul is talking about there. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature objects of God's wrath. We were following the ways of this world. And then verse 4 comes and it says, but God. Who is what? Rich in mercy. <laughs> Made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in trespasses and sins. By grace you have been saved. And so we believe that we have been set free from the judgment of God, the prison of judgment, by the mercy of God. And if we have received mercy... God says, then you, you need to give mercy. And if you have anybody imprisoned in the judgment of your mind, your prejudices, your biases, your man-made distinctions, then you need to, based on the mercy that you have received, unlock that prison door and set them free. Set them free from your judgment. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. In a moment, I'm going to meet you at the communion table. And when I get there, I want to explain to you the difference between the Ark of the Covenant and the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about the similarity between the Ark of the Covenant and the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the very top of the Ark was something called the mercy seat. And I want to describe to you at the communion table what the significance of the mercy seat was in the Old Testament and how incredibly relevant it is to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in a moment, I'm going to be meeting you at the Lord's table as we worship the Lord in song right now. I'm going to ask you, if you're at home, would you go and get some bread and, and cup and come back? and enjoy, enjoy the Lord's table with us as believers that are present here. And if you're present here, 
um, and you don't have one of the little cups that was given, go to the back during this song and get one of those little cups for the Lord's Supper, and I will be explaining how to open it once I get to the table. Scriptures we read about uh, a piece of furniture in the tabernacle in the Old Testament called the Ark of the Covenant. It's probably about the size of a communion table here. And there were poles that, uh, that were extended out both ends so that people would never touch it. It was where the presence of God dwelt among his people in ancient times before Jesus Christ came. And on each end of the table was a cherubim, an angel in pure gold. And the wings of the cherubim extended over the top lid of the Ark of the Covenant and almost touched each other in the middle. And on the top of the Ark was what was called a mercy seat, a lid. Now, in the Ark of the Covenant inside were, was uh, some manna, and, and there was the stone tablets of the commandments. And, but, but the point of Exodus tr- chapter 25, when it's being described, is that, that it, was, it is between these wingtips and at that mercy seat where God said, there I will meet you. And it was incredible to the people of Israel that the the living God, the creator of everything, would meet us. Now, now what was the significance of the, the cherubs, these incredibly big creatures that were angelic beings? The best understanding we have from the scripture is that they looked down at the mercy seat, the lid, They guarded what was holy about God within that. You know in the scriptures how if someone mistreated the Ark of the Covenant, if they laid a hand on it, they were struck dead. And so these cherubs are are guarding the holiness of God. And yet, when on one once a year, once a year, when the high priest would offer sacrifices for the people and himself, and then he would go into not just the the general temple area and not just the holy place temple area, but the very inner court, the holy of holies, where the tabernacle had the Ark of the Covenant, the most important piece of furniture. When he would go in there once a year, he would take blood from the sacrifice and he'd sprinkle it and he would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And, and then something miraculous happened. Is that he, a high priest, a human being representing God's people was not struck dead. But instead, that blood sacrifice threw away all the judgment of God. And where normally anybody that would get so close and that, they would be struck dead. But, but in that moment, mercy triumphed over judgment. 
And the interesting thing is that the, the very word that the Greek text in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses, it's the same word as we are seeing in, in Romans 3.25, propitiation. Jesus Christ was made, given by God to be a mercy seat for us. His blood was shed on the cross. And the mercy of God that came to you and I as sinners, instead of the judgment of God, the mercy of God comes to us. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has sprinkled your conscience, sprinkled your, good, your, your deeds, sprinkled your life with his blood, cleansed you of your sin, and now, instead of being struck with the wrath and the judgment of God, you have mercy triumph over judgment. You know, there's an incredible scene in John chapter 20 at the end of the resurrection. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The tomb is rolled away. Mary Magdalene runs in and she sees in the, temp, in the, uh, tab, sorry, in the tomb there is just the grave clothes and two angels. One at the head where the head was and one at the feet. I don't think that's by accident. I think God is saying to us, the risen Lord Jesus Christ has offered himself in mercy to you who are under the judgment of God, and you now are free. The law of liberty has set you free. How, how is it that we could ever stand then, having been set free by the mercy of God, how could we stand in judgment over someone else different than us? Friends, would you take the cup and the bread that you have? And if you're in the room here, the very top pink cellophane will come off by itself and leave the plastic underneath the tab. And I know this feels like a little bit artificial, but the, the cellophane comes off and you'll, you'll see a little wafer like this. And, and today we're saying to God and to each other that we partake of this wafer in remembrance of the body of Jesus Christ that was given for us. Let me give thanks for this. God our Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who offered his body on the cross in mercy toward us. We receive this bread in remembrance of him. Amen. Would you partake of this now? And then the second tab, the plastic tab, if you'll open it carefully, you'll find that there's juice inside. Let us give thanks. Lord Jesus, this juice squeezed out of grapes represents your blood that was shed on the cross, your blood that became the mercy seat to enable us to approach you and meet with you and have relationship with you. And Jesus, we partake of this in remembrance of what you did at the cross, and we are thankful. We're thankful, Jesus. Amen. Would you partake of this juice now in remembrance of Christ? Amen. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.
In just a moment, we are going to conclude the service that's online. I'm going to pray uh, and in conclusion of the service. And, and, uh, and then if just a little bit after that, um, let's just stay where you are for those who are here. And then we'll invite Courtney up to share as well. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for meeting with us today. I thank you for the deep, deep privilege that we did not deserve but gratefully accept to be able to meet with the God of all the universe, the one who created all things. And I thank you for the freedom that you've given us to do that through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would continue to bless us on this day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.